Welcome back to My Life Post 25. For those of you who are new, my name is Mario Chavez, and I have been wrongfully incarcerated for 17 years for a crime that I did not commit. And uh, this pod- podcast is part of my fight for freedom and justice. And my intention here is to give straightforward answers to your questions. And obviously, your questions are what make this possible. Um, Remember, you can email me your questions at mario at mylifeplus25.com or visit the website and leave a comment or reach me through any of the social platforms on Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, wherever. Uh, Today's topic actually came to me as an email from someone by the name of Ty G. And uh, he says, what do you have to say to those who suggest that everything that you're saying now is a lie? That... Basically, you're just trying to game the system to save your life. Okay. Um, actually, I had been thinking of this question because I always try to think of how things look at look like from the outside looking in. And I think if I were out there listening to someone tell me that they're wrongfully convicted, I think I would be suspicious. You know, because you know that's kind of hard not hard to to believe, but. You know, by most estimates, there are probably 40,000 wrongful convictions in this country every year. So it's a lot more common than most of us think. But I didn't know that then. And I think Ty G's question is a fair one. And I'm going to answer it here rather than respond to him individually. First and foremost, though, I think it's important to point out that I'm actually not saying anything new that I haven't been saying for 17 years. I mean, since my trial, I have been saying I did not kill Garland Taylor. I've said that any number of times to every lawyer I've had, to anyone who would even listen to me. I've written countless letters to the Innocence Project, Centurion, religious groups. I've written to law firms, individual lawyers, law professors, investigative journalists. I've even written to the Mexican consulate or Lulu. I basically, I've written to anyone who I thought might be willing to help me. And the only organization to really show any interest was the Innocence Project. I was contacted by a a Professor Ron who was very friendly, listened to everything that I had to say, and he said, Mario, you're suffering from a grave injustice here. But he told me that because there was no DNA in in my case, that they weren't interested. Apparently, the Innocence Project only gets involved if there's DNA evidence. And, you know, every couple of years, I would send them a new letter because I wanted to see maybe their policies had changed. And last year, I actually sent them another letter. And they had already told me like three or four times throughout the 17 years that they weren't interested. But I sent them another letter last year. And earlier this year, or last month, or the the month before, they actually sent me a letter where they tell me that the Innocence Project in New Mexico is closing its doors, that they no longer have funding. They're no no longer going to exist. I mean, before they were only helping people that had DNA evidence, but... But now there's nothing. So if you're wrongfully convicted in New Mexico, you're you're stuck. And I put a copy of the letter on my uh, website so you can take a look at it. Basically, if you're in prison in New Mexico with no money, you might as well be in a cave in Afghanistan or a box in Guantanamo Bay because without money, you almost had have no advocacy. Out of sight, out of mind, and the world just sort of tends to forget about you. Now, in my, in my trial, I had a private attorney, and, and at my appeal, for my direct appeal, they assigned the one to me, and her, her name was Kathleen McGarry. And I told her what I'm telling the world now. I did not kill Garland Taylor. And she told me things like, be patient, don't talk to the media, be positive. 
that's the kind of advice you get when you, I guess you're not paying for it. And I guess I, I guess you could say that looking back that I, I believe that because I was innocent, that my case would somehow just be overturned. I guess I wanted to believe maybe that's a, a better term. I wanted to believe that there was some kind of higher power that would some sort of make sure that an injustice of this magnitude could not take place. I actually thought that once the state Supreme Court took a look at the evidence and the state's bizarre theory that they would just overturn my case for common sense. You know, there's actually a medical term. It's called the delusion of reprieve. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a of a, a very famous psychiatrist called Viktor Frankl. But Viktor Frankl wrote this book called A Man's Search for Meaning. And he was probably one of the pioneers on something called logotherapy. But Viktor Frankl coined this term, delusion of reprieve, because he went to Auschwitz. He survived Auschwitz, a concentration camp. And he said that even when he was getting on the train, take him to Auschwitz, he still believed that someone or something or some power was going to rescue him. He says even when they were getting him off the train at the thing, and you could see the smokestacks from the bodies that had been burned, even then he believed that somehow someone was going to come forth and call his name out and tell him that he wasn't supposed to uh, be there. And of course, that didn't happen to him. And it didn't happen to me either. And if any of you are asking yourself why I didn't scream my innocence to the media at the moment of being arrested 17 years ago, the answer to that question is because I was told by my lawyer that that would be the stupidest thing I could possibly do. My trial counsel had 30 years of experience and he told me to avoid all interactions with the media. His reasoning was that I needed to prove my case to the jury, not the media. And while I was in jail awaiting trial, I almost had no access to what the media was even saying. My family was hesitant to even discuss anything with me over the recorded phone calls at the jail. And what I learned at trial was that the media basically just fell in line with whatever the police told them. I mean, it was obvious to me that they didn't actually do any investigation in their reporting, nor did they interview anyone who actually knew me. Who did they interview? From what I could tell, they interviewed anyone who had an interest a financial interest in seeing me in prison, ex-father-in-law, ex-business partners, ex-wife. I guess 17 years ago, that was considered good investigative journalism. And the simple fact is, is that no journalist seemed to pay any attention to the most obvious blatant fact that the case that the state was presenting against me didn't make any sense. And to this day, 17 years later, that hasn't changed. Allow me to, to explain for all of you exactly what the state's theory was. The story that Carrie Brandenburg, the elected district attorney, sold to the jury was that I had a hitman fantasy and that I killed and robbed Mr. Taylor for no other reason than because I was acting out of fantasy. Now, I'm going to give you all a moment to absorb what I just said. I mean, better yet, I'm going to repeat it. Mr. Carl, Mr. Garland Taylor died, according to the state, because of a fantasy. Now, you're probably thinking that there must have existed some very compelling evidence to suggest that. Maybe a history of mental health issues or, or a series of violence and crime in my past. Or, or maybe some kind of diary where I had confessed to wanting to do something like this. And you would be wrong. 
always knew that I existed. And rather than, than, than judge or jump to conclusions, let's just take a moment to see if we can't look at their evidence. Let's see if we can't understand the compelling reasons that they had for believing that I, a college grad, entrepreneur, businessman with no criminal history, no mental illness, no substance abuse, would just suddenly decide to kill someone who I had never met and kill someone that I didn't have anything against. I mean, let's be very, very, very clear here. At this point in my life, I most certainly had enemies. I had an ex-father-in-law, ex-business partners, ex-wife who were openly threatening me. They were having meetings, leaving voicemails, sending me emails, and the police knew about this. They were doing openness, all these threats openly. Let's see, they blame me for their business losses and financial losses. And when I refused to compensate them for said losses because the law did not obligate me to do so, they robbed my residence, tried to extort me, threatened me any number of ways. I mean, what I'm saying here is that if I had wanted to kill someone, I had people who were actually trying to harm me to choose from. But that's not who I was. That's not who I am now. But what they're saying is that I did this crime and then to do it in such a way that I would be openly identifiable to any number of people who I had met and greeted at the scene of the crime, it almost sounds like suicide by cop or some kind of bizarre quest to forfeit everything that I had worked for. I mean, I'm not saying that every crime needs to make sense to every person. And I'm also not saying that there aren't things that happen in this world that don't make any sense. But what I am saying is that we shouldn't be allowed to take away someone's life when the facts clearly don't support the theory of the case. And as I said before, let's actually look at the evidence. Let's try to substantiate their theory that the state relied on. They used four pieces of primary evidence to substantiate, to buttress their case against me. The first was a book, a book titled How to Be a Hitman. The second piece was testimony from a woman by the name of Lisa Miguel, who quoted me as having said in public that the best profession of all was out of a hitman because they get to set their own work schedules. Wait, 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 there's more. The third piece of evidence was a membership card to a very exclusive tennis and health club in Phoenix. And the name on that card, Mario Gambino. The fourth piece of evidence was the browser history information on a laptop that I did not own, but that I did use. And said browser history included such things as body disposal and notorious criminals, hitman, among other things, less sinister things. Now, I know what you're probably thinking, and I know how the optics of this look, but before we go get ahead of ourselves and reconvict me again based on the optics of how these four things look, let's do something that hasn't been done before. Let's actually look to see if these four things actually even point to me. The first piece of evidence, as I mentioned, was this book titled How to Be a Hitman. Now, you're probably thinking there must have found this book in my car or in my luggage or on my person or, or somewhere for them to have legitimately associated said book with me. And if you're thinking that, you would be wrong. This book came to the attention of the police when they arrested their first primary suspect, Eloy Montano a friend who we've all met in previous episodes. Now, shortly after having been read his Miranda rights and having made sure that he was more than aware that if he didn't cooperate, that he was going to be charged for murder, I guess he 
decided what was one more betrayal between friends after so many. And in Eloy's rendition of events that portrayed me as a murderer, among other things, he told them that while seated in my car, he had seen a book called How to Be a Hitman. And that from that moment, he believed that I had a fantasy to become a hitman. That's where this whole thing was born from, his self-serving statement. Now, I'm sure that the police were all very impressed with Eloy's sincerity. I mean, after all, he was cracking the case wide open for them. All they had to do was believe everything he was telling them, question nothing, and investigate even less, and the case would be solved. And I guess that's what they wanted. They weren't really interested in who did it. They just wanted to see could they get a conviction against somebody. But guess what they found, the same police, when someone had the brilliant idea, and this brilliant idea, mind you, didn't come from the police. When someone had the brilliant idea of looking inside at Eloy's home computer. I'll save you all the suspense. What they found was that the very book, How to Be a Hitman, downloaded to his desktop over a year before I even ever came into the picture. And there were other publications just like it. Now, before someone goes off and suggests that I went to his house in secret a year beforehand and downloaded the book to his computer, I had never been to his house, never touched his, com his com computer, and there is nothing or nobody even suggesting otherwise. So there's the first piece of evidence out the window. That leaves us with, with the second piece, right, which was the statement by Lisa Miguel quoting me as having said that the best profession was that of a hitman because they get to schedule their own work hours. My God. First, let's establish for all of, all of us again who Lisa Miguel is or was. Lisa was a woman who I maintained relations with for about two years. And when, when we met, I was separated from my wife and she was married. Husband, two daughters. We met at a health club and started off something as very casual, became very intense. And I don't doubt that for a time period, we both loved each other. I mean, we, we had tons of romantic trips to the Caribbean, to Mexico, to Vegas, to Lake Tahoe. We were constantly planning our next excursion. We both knew about each other's marital problems and we accepted one another with, with our respective baggage. And we, for a time period, we even wanted to have a life together. But my legal spouse and was the daughter of my principal business partner and she would not sign divorce papers. Not without a lot of money. And Lisa's husband didn't even know that she wanted a divorce. I mean, for the longest time, she had him believing that she was just spending time with a gay friend. He didn't even know that she wanted a divorce because he was always gone having his own affairs. And I'm not going to go too much further into this because, I mean, I understand Lisa is actually an episode un unto herself, but that's the relevance of my case and the, the, the second piece of evidence, which was her statement that I made an open comment regarding hitman and assassins. Let me set the stage for you. It was New Year's Eve, Caesar's Palace, Lake Tahoe. She's my date. In attendance were other business associates and their dates. Over champagne and dinner, I made a very open statement to everyone at the table in response to a conversation being had at that table that the most lucrative profession that I thought, that I thought, of course, in all of my inebriated wisdom, was that of a hitman because they could schedule their own work schedules. Now, everyone there, including Lisa, knew that I was just being facetious and ridiculous. I mean, I was enjoying myself and making people laugh. There was nothing more to the statement. It was made years before the events that took place with this, with this crime. And to say the least, I was surprised to see her on the state's witness list at the last minute. 
The reason it being is that she was the only friend that came forward to help me when I was arrested. She was the person that believed in me from the very beginning. She flew in to visit me. We spoke. We even cried together. Without even asking her, she handed over thousands of dollars to my lawyer for legal expenses. She wanted to be there for me every step of the way. And the only reason that I didn't allow her to be there for me every step of the way was because I had chosen someone else for my life. And I didn't think that it was fair to her to string her along when I had chosen someone else for my life. And I thanked her for all of her love, for all the wonderful moments that we had shared. And I told her to please try and forget me. And her response to that was she sent me a long email swearing eternal love that if I ever needed her, that she would be there, that all I had to do was, was just ask. So naturally, I was surprised to see her on the state's witness list as someone who was trying to harm me. But when I really started to think about it, I think I understood what she was up against. I mean, her husband was wealthy, powerful, and he had never forgiven her for having chosen me over him. And he told her exactly what he had told her so many times before when she was with me. This time it was if that she didn't help the state to put me away and bury me, that he was going to take custody of the daughters away from her. He had threatened her this with he had threatened her with this before. This wasn't anything new. But before she had me and my resources and there was no way I was gonna let that happen. But I wasn't there now to protect her. And I know that she had to do what she had to do. And she came and gave testimony about my statement in Lake Tahoe at Caesar's Palace. And for good fun, I guess she decided to say that maybe I did have a hitman fantasy. She couldn't be sure. I can't even imagine the amount of pressure that she must have been under to make that statement. Because if ever there was a false statement, that was it. But I think it's important for us to put her statement into perspective because Lisa was many things, but she was not a bad mother. We took vacations together, not just her and I, but also trips with her girls. And if Lisa had believed for a second that I was dangerous, she would not have had, have exposed me to her little girls. So let's move on to the third piece of evidence, which is the, the, the membership card, right? In my wallet to the exclusive uh, tennis and health club in Phoenix with the name Mario Gambino. People tend to associate this, this name, Gambino, with the Mob family from New York, right? But those are not the only people with that name. In Phoenix alone, it was a popular name. There was Gambino Chevrolet along with lots of other businesses owned by the same family. And the reason that I had a membership with that name was because they wouldn't give me a membership otherwise. Even though I was willing to pay the outrageous membership fees and dues, they would not give me a membership. I wanted a membership for the simple fact that that club was where a good portion of the city's wealthy and powerful mingled. And anyone who was anyone in business in Phoenix was a member of that club. Remember, again, at the time I was executive VP of marketing and sales for my company. It was important for me to be able to mingle with these people. And when a friend of mine told me that he could get me a membership, naturally I was interested. And when he told the person at the front desk that I was his cousin and that my name was Mario Gambino, I went along with it. I would just have easily have went along with saying that my name was Mario Guzman or Mario Escobar or for that matter, Mario Trump, if it would have gotten me a membership into that club. Because none of that had anything whatsoever to do with Mr. Taylor's death. Nothing. 
It was just something that was used to sensationalize it in front of the media. Which brings us now to the fourth piece of evidence, the browser history of a laptop that I used. I showed web searches for, for body disposal or notorious criminals and hitman, among many other less sinister searches, like the searches that I made to find my residence in New York, which is where I was moving. And I'm not even going to deny that I probably made some of those searches. I say probably because my friend Eloy was often with me when those searches were being made, and those searches were relevant to conversations that we were having in real time. As I've explained in other episodes, my beloved friend, my betrayer, was in a desperate situation when I came into town to seek his help with my own problems. And he pitched me ideas for about wanting to rob or maybe even kill a drug dealer that he knew. I mean, this was by no means a surprise to me. He had pitched this idea to me years before, more than once. Before, he just wanted to rob a drug dealer, but now he had the added caveat of wanting to kill said drug dealer. And as I had always done before, I listened to him. First, at that point, I still believed that he was my friend. Second, I needed his help. Which, at the very least, meant that I had to humor him some. And third, if you've ever found yourself in a position to try to talk sense into someone or in any way discourage their current course of action, you're best advised to at least listen to what they have to say. If I had just said, Eloy, you're an idiot and you're either going to end up dead or in prison, which ironically is what I ended up having to use at the last hour, it would have just given me more of the same arguments that I had had with him any number, any other number of times where he accuses me of thinking that I'm so much smarter than, than uh, he is. And then that leads into an argument that takes us nowhere. I know because I went to that argument with him any number of times year after year. So instead of that, I initially asked him questions like, okay, Eloy, so after you kick in the front door of this drug dealer of yours, storm in and shoot him, then what? What are you going to do with the body? What about the neighbors? What if somebody else is in the house with him? And well, what if he sees you coming and shoots you first? He would then give me his answers, and then I would do this search or that search and show him that his idea was nonsense. I wanted to show him that it was nonsense without having to say, you're an idiot, and your idea is nonsense. If you're asking yourself why I would even entertain this conversation, the answer is easy. It's because it was interesting to me. At the time, I was writing a crime novel, and one of the secondary characters of the book, Jonathan Benelli, was based off my beloved friend, Eloy. I later published it under a pen name while I was incarcerated, and you're all welcome to read it. It's on Amazon. I'm willing to bet that if you were to, to look at the browser history for Mario Puzo or, or James Patterson or Stephen King, Dean Kuntz, how about Quentin Tarantino? you would probably find some troubling Google searches for some very questionable topics. And that, ladies and gentlemen, does not make these people homicidal maniacs. Did I entertain Eloy's conversations about crime, murder, maybe even the perfect heist of the century? Yes, I most certainly did. And I'm also not going to apologize for having enjoyed the Godfather books or Goodfellas or The Bronx Tale or Donnie Brasco. And I'm not going to apologize for being a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino's work, in particular Reservoir Dogs. But what does any of this have to do with Mr. Taylor's death? It doesn't. It never did. For the state's theory to be true, it would mean that on the day in question, 
when, mind you, I had a 10 a.m. appointment to meet a local man at a bank to wire transfer funds to his account so as to purchase his Porsche for approximately $90,000. Now, before doing this, and, and then after that, I was scheduled to have lunch with a relative, then head to New York, where I had already rented an apartment. But before doing any of this, I decide to somehow bilocate myself in two different locations at the same time. Call Mr. Taylor anonymously from a payphone so as to lure him from his death. Then I transfer my presence back to my original location, miles away, through apparition or magic or however, to a Starbucks. Continue sending emails and then go meet a man who I had never met before for the sole purpose of killing him. But wait, wait, wait. Before killing him, I decided to tour the property, take photographs, greet the neighbors, so as to make sure that as many people as possible have seen me, then kill him. That's what happened according to the state. Then I drive to a nearby shopping center where my dear friend, who supposedly had car troubles, coincidentally is standing 50 feet away from the exact payphone that had been used to lure Mr. Taylor to his death. I then take this man to the house for no other reason than to show him a corpse. Then once we're at the house, I risk myself further by intercepting a man and his woman. Uh, I mean, a man and his daughter, I'm sorry, who had arrived at the residence. I walk out of the house to prevent them from coming into the house and being killed by Eloy. And of course, that's one other group of people that are going to now identify me. Then somewhere in all of this, I steal Mr. Taylor's wallet and then send that wallet 600 miles away to my primary enemy, Dennis Moline, who would love nothing more than to have more leverage over me so as to further extort me, so as to recuperate his financial losses at my expense. This would have to be the stupidest crime of the century. And if any of this sounds stupid and made up, that's because it is stupid and they made it up. So thank you to Ty G for today's topic. Thank you for listening, and please remember to subscribe to my weekly column on Substack. Uh, I touch on the very socioeconomic issues that touch all of us. And these are in-depth autobiographical pieces, and I'm raising funding and awareness for to create a potential documentary on wrongful convictions. So thank you for your following. Thank you for your support. Until next time.